Would you turn, please, in your Bibles to Acts chapter 25, Acts 25. As you look at the news lately, you wonder, is the world actually coming off of its tracks, don't you? And this isn't the first time we might have wondered those things. Some of us look at our lives and we wonder, who's in charge? What's going on? Is the whole thing going to careen right off of the road? A few years ago, Tim and I were headed to um, a car show out in uh, Missouri, and he was in one truck pulling his car on the trailer, and I was in another truck pulling my car on the trailer going to this car show, and we were trucking down I-20, and all of a sudden, boom! And my, tr my truck had had a blowout, and... Um, it went like this, and it went like this, and it went like further over here, and I was pretty sure it was just going to be rolling any moment and wrecking and one of those flash before your... At that moment, I knew I wasn't in control. I, I might have thought I had been in control driving that truck, but one good blowout can let you know you're not in control. And uh, mercifully, the Lord, I think, was in control and made sure we didn't crash and wreck. Message today out of Acts 25, I hope we will see before the end of this hour, speaks to this whole issue that I just addressed there. Acts 25, since it's been a number of weeks, Paul's on trial before the Roman governor Festus in Acts 25, but since it's been a number of weeks, We've set aside a couple of weeks for our GIC, and before that we were traveling several times, and there's been multiple occasions, multiple uh, trials so far. Can I just give us a little bit of a review and get a running start to where we are in Acts 25 today? Remember, Paul was in the temple in Jerusalem. He came to worship, came to bring an offering. He's been gone for some number of years from Jerusalem. He's in the temple worshiping. All of a sudden, some Jews, probably from Ephesus, recognized him. They hated his guts. And they started yelling, This is him! This is the guy who speaks against the Jewish people and the, the law of Moses. And this is the guy who tells people to stop worshiping and, and, and don't have to obey the law for your children, your sons. And, and he speaks against this temple. And they, they fomented a, a mob, a riot, right then and there. And the people came rushing and they grabbed a hold of Paul. They started beating him. Luke tells us they were trying to kill him. They were doing a pretty good job. All the uproar, though, alerted the Roman commander, who I think was just right next door. He came running down with his men. They grabbed a hold of Paul, rescued him from the moment. And he, and, uh, he wanted to know what had been going on couldn't get any answers. So he took Paul, he's headed Paul back to the barracks. As they were about to get to the top of the steps, Paul says, may I say something to you? And of course, he's speaking in Greek to the Roman commander. And the commander says, oh, you know Greek. Well, yeah. May I say something to the crowd? He begins to give his defense of what was going on in his heart, why he was here. This is his first defense to the crowd to this mob. The mob became exceptionally quiet because he addressed them in, uh, in Aramaic, Hebrew tongue. And uh, I think that the Roman commander didn't know Aramaic, 
So he didn't know what the guy was saying. The crowd was exceptionally quiet as they listened to him. But at one point, something he said just stirred him up all the more. They started throwing dust in the air, probably because they didn't have rocks to throw at him. Screaming and yelling, saying, this man ought not to be allowed to live. The commander didn't know what he had said or what happened or why all this was taken. They had to lift the, sol the soldiers, lifted Paul up and carried him into the barracks. And he proceeded to say, I'll... I'll whip it out of him. Well, you know how that story went. The next day, the commander, still wanting to know what went down, what did this guy do to deserve all this? What evil? Had he been an assassin, a terrorist of some sorts? So he brings the whole 71-member council of the Sanhedrin, the, the top council, the Supreme Court of Israel, plus the high priest, 71 of them into official session. They begin to ask him questions. This is his second defense. Before long, Paul answered something there, and that meeting just went haywire. Everything went crazy. So the, the commander uh, goes down there and rescues him from that midst and keeps him out. He's still wondering what's going on. Somebody comes and tells the commander that there's a plot on, his li on Paul's life. That 71-member uh, council is going to come to the commander and say, please, let's have another chance to try to talk to him tomorrow. Bring him down here. But don't do it because there's a plot. They're going to kill him. They've vowed not to eat or drink until they kill him. At that moment, the commander whisks Paul away to uh, a city 70 miles away, sends him to the governor. I think I had some slides and I've read. There's the mob, crazy mob. And there's Paul giving his defense, and that went haywire, and they're trying to get him again, so the soldiers whisk him away to the barracks. And then the next day, the commander says, talk to me, what's this? And that devolved into mayhem as well. So 470 soldiers whisk Paul away from Jerusalem at night to keep him from this plot to kill him, 70 miles away to Caesarea Philippi to the governor. Well, now he's in the care of the governor, whose name is Felix. And this is an artist's conception of what Felix might look like. Then the Jewish leaders came down to press their charges against Paul, their case against Paul. And they had a hearing. This is yet another defense. And then Felix said, well, I've heard from you accusers. When Lysias, the commander who rescued Paul from this mob, when he comes down here, I'll decide your case. So now we are almost right up to where we're going to talk today. I'd like to go back into 24, verse 22, and pick up the remaining story. Felix, that's this guy up on the screen, or some likeness of him, having a more exact knowledge about the way, that's the Christian life, put them off saying, when Lysias the commander comes down, I'll decide your case. And he gave orders to the centurion for Paul to be kept in custody and yet have some freedom and not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess. And Felix sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as Paul was discussing righteousness, 
self-control and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, Go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. So here's this same artist drawing for us Felix with his young wife. She was very young. And the Apostle Paul. And what is Paul speaking to him about? Let me tell you a little bit about Felix. He was not exactly the paragon of virtue. He himself had been a slave, but then was freed. Historians tell us that he exercised his powers as a governor, as a king, in the spirit of a slave. He was harsh. He had a reputation for cruelty and violence. He reportedly hired assassins to kill the Jewish high priest, Jonathan. There were riots in villages and uh, burned, and there was looting and plundering, and he exacted vengeance, but then sometimes he stirred it up. Historians tell us he was inept. Drusilla was his third wife. He married her when she was less than 20, 19 years old, and he was her third husband. He convinced her to leave husband number two and come be his wife. And um, now then, Paul is speaking with him about what? Righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. He was terrified. Can you imagine why? The greatest evangelist, the greatest theologian is speaking to him of matters of the utmost importance. Where will I spend eternity and to whom shall I give an answer? And Felix thought he was interviewing Paul, but Paul was giving him truth about the real judge to come. Well, in due time, Nero, the emperor, recalled Felix. The Jews made such a protest about him, about all the ineptness of his rule and all of the rioting, looting, and cruelty and harm that he uh, brought about. Nero recalled him to Rome. And if he hadn't known somebody there, he'd have probably uh, been punished but he managed to escape punishment because he knew somebody. Well, now we come to the balance of the chapter. After he said, go away for the present, when I find time, I will summon you. Oh, there's another motive going on. At the same time, too, Felix was hoping, hoping that money would given, be given him by Paul. There's some more of his integrity. Therefore, he also used to send for him quite often and converse with him. But time passed. After two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And Luke doesn't tell us, but historians tell us this is when Nero recalled him to Rome, said, you need to come back, you get, get out of there. And wishing to do the Jews a favor, Make a mental note of that phrase. Wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul imprisoned. Now, chapter 25. Festus, therefore, the new governor, 
taking Felix's place, who'd been the procrastinator, the inept ruler. Festus, therefore, having arrived in the province, where did he come from? Rome. Having come now from Rome and arrived in the province, three days later, he goes up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. Why was he going to Jerusalem? Well, to build relationships, to curry a good relation, favor with the Jews, who had a reputation with Rome for being, shall we say, difficult? Well, in Jerusalem, he goes up there, wasting no time in three days. Would you have taken a trip to Jerusalem three days after you had arrived from Rome? He did. And if there wasn't anything else about Festus, he was very purposeful and direct, unlike his predecessor. Festus, therefore, having arrived in the province three days later, went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul, and they were urging him, that is Festus, requesting a favor against Paul that he, Paul, or that he, Festus, might have Paul brought to Jerusalem. Oh, and at the same time, they were setting an ambush to kill him on the way. That part Festus didn't know about. He may have had very little time to understand what the prisoner Paul was doing there in Caesarea Philippi. And now he's approached by the Jewish leaders and the influential men, the leading men of the Jews, bringing their charges against Paul. Do you remember what their charges were? We'll get to that in a moment. Well, Festus said no. Verse 4, Festus answered that Paul was being kept in custody at Caesarea and that he himself was about to leave shortly. So he said, let the influential men among you go there with me. And if there's anything wrong about the man, let them prosecute him. And after he'd not spent not more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea. And on the next day, don't you like this guy not procrastinating? The other guy procrastinated for two years. This guy gets right after. On the next day, he took his seat on the tribunal, the judgment seat, and ordered Paul to be brought. And after Paul had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove. I picture, so there's Festus, and then here are the ones bringing charges against Paul. If I picture the text correctly, um, Festus is seated on this judgment seat. That was the, the, the way Rome did things. He's on the judgment seat, the tribunal. And they brought this man in, the accused, Paul. And he is standing there. And then all of the accusers gather around him. And they begin making their charges. Even our system of the accused seeing his accusers stems somewhat from this. They gather around him and they begin saying one thing and another and another and another. It's pretty intimidating. 
What were their, what were their charges? What was their mindset? Could we pause for a minute and think about these men represented by this artist's drawing? How long has it been since the events that precipitated today's event? Two years. He sat under the governorship of Felix for two years while, while Felix kind of dilly-dallied. These men haven't lost an ounce of their vindictive hatred toward the apostle. They know exactly what they want. Remember, there had been a plot to put him to death two years ago. They're still ready to pull out an ambush and kill him. Get him brought back up to Jerusalem, we'll kill him. He'll never even make it. What has stirred their hearts? Do you see the hatred? Do you see the venom just spewing out of them? They brought many and serious charges against him. Luke adds the next phrase, which they could not prove. What kind of charges were these which they could not prove? Vehement, angry, hate-filled charges against this man. And then verse 8. Paul said these words in his defense, in his own defense. I have committed no offense, and we read by this the primary charges. I have committed no offense either against the law, that'd be the law of Moses, the law of the Jews, or against the temple, or against Caesar. The charges were that this man stirs up people. He's a violator of the peace of Rome. He has even defiled the temple. And he speaks against Moses and law and our religion. And they hoped that these and all some of the others that they had violently and vehemently spewed out, something would stick. And here Paul makes a one-sentence defense. I have committed no offense either against the law of the Jews or against the, char or against the temple or against Caesar. Well, how does Re Festus respond? Verse 10, 9, But Festus, and there's that sentence again, wishing to do the Jews a favor. Same sentence was given to us about Felix, wishing to do the Jews a favor. Wishing to do the Jews a favor, Festus answered Paul after what appears to be a one-sentence defense and said, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? These charges that these men who are gathered all around you, pointing and shouting and demanding, and are you willing to go up to Jerusalem to stand trial there before me on these charges? A change of venue. What would come of a change of venue? You're Paul the Apostle, and you're contemplating this. What would come of a change of venue? A more fair trial? Do you think a more fair trial would come if you were in Jerusalem with this angry mob, 
just these ones gathered here, multiplied by, multiplied by how many fold? Would there be a more fair trial? Festus says, no, you'll, you'll, be, you'll stand before me I think Paul said there can be no good thing can come from a quote-unquote trial there. And so Paul says to him, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, Caesar's judgment seat, where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you, Festus, also very well know. Now then, if I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Powerful words. If none of those things is true, where are the witnesses? There are none. Where is the, where is the proof which Luke alluded to, many and serious charges against Paul which they could not prove. Where are the witnesses? Where's the proof? It isn't there. So what is the point of going back up to Jerusalem? Well, the point is it would be a favor to the Jews, Festus thinks in his mind, wishing to do the Jews a favor. He says, well, will we go back to Jerusalem and, try and, and be tried there before me? Still be a Roman trial. Paul says, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews as you, Festus, very well know. I appeal to Caesar. Then when Festus had conferred with his counsel, he answered, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. So why did Paul appeal to Caesar? Was it for his own safety? I don't think so. Because right there in the very sentence he said afterward, or before he said, if I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. So, saving his own skin doesn't seem to be why he appealed to Caesar. Why then did he appeal to Caesar? I think the clue comes to us a couple pages earlier, back in chapter 23. On the night immediately following his defense before the council, the supreme council, verse 11, the Lord Jesus stood at his side and said, Paul, take courage. For as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. My sense is, he has a calling on his heart to be in Rome. And if I go back to Jerusalem, I'll never make it to Rome. And furthermore, the Lord wants me at Rome. I appeal to Caesar. I believe these are the mechanics of why he appealed to Caesar. But I'd like to ask you a question before we leave this episode. 
If you think back over these last two years of Paul, first the mob in the temple, then whisked away by the, the soldiers, then standing before the crowd, and then the Sanhedrin, and then Felix, and now Festus, and these leaders who've come down now, what are you thinking? You contemplate the hatred with which those Jewish leaders hate you? You contemplate the mob, the delays, the, the, the riots, the beatings that you've endured. What are you thinking if you're Paul? Are you tempted to wonder who's in charge? When you contemplate all of these things, the inept rulers and the false charges and the delays and the change of, uh, to a change of venue and the wicked leaders, just, and we could add to the list. For two years, he has languished waiting for a decision from a leader who just wouldn't give it because he wished to do the Jews a favor. And now he's before another leader who also wishes to do the Jews a favor. That word favor appears three times in our text today. First, the Jew, uh, Felix wished to do the Jews a favor. Then the Jews, when Festus came up to Jerusalem, asked him for a favor with regard, or against Paul, it says. And now Festus wishes to do the Jews a favor. Enough with the favors, huh? As you contemplate all of these things, if you're the Apostle Paul and more, what is going through your mind? Two years. He has not been able to travel around to the, to the churches. Two years. Any preaching he's doing, they have to come to him. I think if you're Paul, you're asking yourself the question, who's in charge? Who is in charge? Why? Does it look as if everything is running off the rails? We ask ourselves the same question these days. We look at the world scene and we say, who's in charge? You might look at some of the things in your life and say, is anybody really in charge? I sure am not, but is anyone really in charge? Well, the answer, of course, is that God is in control. In fact, this law, which if I understand correctly about appealing to Caesar, was embedded in Roman law in the 6th century before Christ. God laid this foundation way back then. Is God in charge? This means by which Paul appealed as a Roman citizen to Caesar. It reminds me of... Joseph. You remember Joseph? Hated by his brothers, sold by his brothers, sent to Egypt. Now he's bought as a slave, accused wrongly, thrown in prison as a, in a dungeon, languishes there, forgotten by people that... What question might he be asking? Who's in charge? A friend, you look at the situations in your life, and you might be tempted to ask also who's in charge. Our budget, certain crises in our lives, relationships that have suffered harm. You look at the time that is hastening on in your own clock. 
How about your health? Disappointments? Children not walking with the Lord? Grandchildren? Loneliness? Despondency? Discouragement? Loss of employment? You look at your life, and if you don't, you probably will be tempted to say, who is really in charge? The answer to who is in charge before us is that God is in charge, isn't it? And not just in charge, I started looking for all of the ways we could say that God is in charge. God has not allowed anything to come the Apostle Paul's way that wasn't first father-filtered. How does a good father make sure that good things come to his sons or daughters? Everything that came Paul's way had to be first approved by the Apostle, or by the Father. You remember all the harm that befell Job? Satan had to have permission for each and everything before he could act. We assume from that that that's true for all believers. Everything that comes to you and me as followers of Jesus has to come with the permission of a loving Father, lovingly Father-filtered. It comes to us from a Father who loves us and is unrattled by the dictators, by the regimes, by the violence, the cruelty, the delays, the ineptness of a Felix or a North Korean governor or a Shah or our own elected officials. But as I kept going, I thought, I don't have enough words up there about this one who's in charge. He's unharried, he's unrattled, he's fully engaged in this man supposedly rotting for two years in prison. He's fully engaged. He's always on time. And to use that word, favor, he favors those. And do we see these things happening in the Apostle Paul's life? Scholars tell us that Luke was there, we have good evidence of that, Luke was there writing his Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, or at least doing a lot of the research for it, during these two years that Paul was at Caesarea Philippi, coming and interviewing Paul and asking questions, traveling over here to talk to this one another. Was God somehow absent? Did something sort of slip by God? No, not in the least. Providence, the song says, can leave a frown. No, it might seem like it has a, it's a frowning providence, but no. God's providence is always loving. It's unrattled, it's unharried, it's engaged, it's on time, it's favored, it's good, it's kind, it's loving. And you can, I could keep going on and on. That kind of providence is what is taking care of the Apostle Paul in what appears to be two years of forgottenness, two years of wasted time, two years of mistreatment, two years of having shared the gospel with 
This man, Felix, who was a womanizer, didn't want to hear it. He said, go away, I'll talk to you later, that terrifies me. And by extension, you and I look at our lives and we are tempted to say, who's really in control? And what's he like? And we must realize with the Apostle Paul that so much more is going on behind the scenes that we are not grasping. And we say this and we see that and we wonder about this and the other. And God only brings to the Apostle Paul and to each of his fathers what has first passed through his process of approval and his love and his kindness and his favor. All these people were seeking favors. We already have that favor through Jesus Christ. And he is always favorably inclined toward his children. That includes you and me. Who's in control? Who's in charge? All these people mean it for evil. These hate-filled people. They are holding grudges for two years. Can you imagine the ulcers they must have if they've lived that way for two years? Their hatred and their violence and their spewing of anger hasn't touched the plan of God for good toward his servant, the Apostle Paul. And you might have people who are executing wrath against you, hatred, relationships have gone south. You might think, I've been forgotten by the Father. I haven't heard anything. It's been two years, five years. God is making sure we understand that he is absolutely mindful, lovingly mindful of his servant Paul and of us. More on this story next week, but that's where we are today. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for this instance of your behind-the-scenes loving providence toward your servant Paul. And by extension, we draw from that, that you are that way, not just in Paul's life, but we see it in other lives throughout the scriptures, and we, by extension, draw that application to our lives as well. The apostle himself wrote, every promise in Christ Jesus is yes. And so we claim your favor, your, your love, your goodness, your kindness toward us, not because we deserve it, but because of Jesus Christ. And we give you thanks in his name. Amen.